take your Bibles, you can open up to Revelation chapter 13. All right, Revelation 13. Before we begin, let's go ahead and read the text together this morning. And then um, the, a lot of revelation is you want to take at least two runs at it. Because if you're not tracking and you haven't been studying with me, that's okay. Hopefully I can come along and help you all this morning. Um, but we are definitely in the part of the book where you start to see those symbolisms and where the correspondence to that, what is it symbolizing? What is it a picture for becomes a little more uh, interesting um, and it's a little more work. Even when you see the metaphors here of the leopard and the bear um, and the lion. Sometimes we know what bears are. We know what lions are. We know what leopards are. And so you start to go, maybe it's because the leopard's fast and maybe the lion because he's ferocious and devouring. But you miss a little bit just by understanding that that isn't just a metaphor here that we're going to see that comes from that animal, but it is also one which has been used in Scripture before, which we're going to see because Daniel uses this of three particular nations previously in Daniel. So hopefully we're going to pull it all together and see those things and help us see. We know who the dragon is, verse 1, because we saw that in the previous chapter. That is Satan. So let me read Chapter 13, verse 1, it says, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. And then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain fatally, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking great boasts and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth. In blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear... Let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. And if anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Father, as we come now, we pray for open ears to hear your word with a diligent mindset to even study and to listen in a way that would be like an approved workman who is diligent. And so we understand 
In places such as Revelation 13, there is some work to be done, and yet such clarity in the beast described here, because he is described simply by whom he is not. And we are yet again reminded of the beauty of Christ, and worthy is he, the lamb, the true lamb, slain for us. So help us, even as we focus here in Revelation on the personal, not just the spirit of the age, spirit of the Antichrist, but the individual who personifies, who is an individual, this beast, the Antichrist, that comes from the pit, that we would never get so far to forget he is simply a fake, an imposter of the true Christ that we serve. So may we see Christ even as we study this morning. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, in the late 90s, it seemed like every big city that any of my friends went to, the thing to do was to find people selling stuff on the sidewalks. I don't care if it was L.A. or Chicago or Washington, D.C. And they had to buy a pair of Oakley's. Oakley sunglasses. I see some nods out there. Yeah, you know. And they brought the Oakley's back to class and said, hey, I've got Oakley's. And about a week later, they either start to break or some of the, you know, coloring would fade or the little O of the Oakley would pop off. You know, they had paid five bucks from some street vendor. And that's the first time I remember hearing that term. It's like, oh, fake Oakley's. They're like, yeah, you can get a Rolex. Ten bucks. I don't think so. You realize, oh, there is a difference between what is genuine and what is fake, what is real, and what is counterfeit. When we come to Revelation 13, that's really how the Antichrist, or in this case, he's not quite identified exactly that way, but we know from elsewhere, he's clearly the Antichrist, um, the one that Christ has called the one who will commit the abomination of desolation, the man of lawlessness, as Paul calls him, and that he is ultimately simply a counterfeit, which makes a lot of sense. If Satan is an angel of light, and ultimately his last deception is, if I can't get them to not worship the Christ, I'll give them Christ, but a fake one. And everyone really is longing in our world, believer, unbeliever, for ultimately a savior, And so when the world unites around one leader here, who even has a false resurrection, it makes complete sense as the final deception. Try to imitate what God has done through Christ to have the world follow. Simply, the world we live in is full of counterfeits. I want to read a quote from an author on this idea of counterfeits. And I thought just helpful to frame the concept here of What attracts us to things that you could say look good, but become ultimate and ultimately just Old Testament idols? You may think we don't bow down to any wooden statues in our culture or anything else. Although I may have a few friends that I talked to that wanted to hang out this morning with me. And I was like, I don't know if you know what I do. Uh, And then also said, well, we got to hang out early because the Creighton game's on later. It's like, oh, okay. Different, different priorities. I, I got something going on this morning. But 
I like the way he worded this. He said this, what are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement? But these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society. So we don't think we worship the Greek gods yet. He says we, we may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven to depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but money and career are raised to cosmic proportions. And we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and to gain more wealth and prestige. You see, this counterfeit isn't new in the sense of presenting what God holds as good and right. Satan's been counterfeiting from the time he spread lies in the garden until this day. John Calvin helpfully calls the human heart the idol factory. Why? Because we're made to worship. And the world is going to be at such a place here that they're going to bow down to the beast when he comes out of the sea. One day we're going to move past this kind of postmodern world where everything is your truth and you feel it in places today. Someone's going to go, let's stop all the fighting and all the bickering and let's just get in line and get along. And there is a time when that false peace we've seen, the white rider comes out at the beginning of this tribulation period. And what is he doing for those three and a half years at the beginning is he's holding together a false peace and it will ultimately crumble down. And we saw in chapter 12 with Satan that he knows he's been thrown out of heaven and his time is short. It's helpful here as we look back at Revelation that we have seen the things that, if you remember from chapter 1, we've seen the things that are. The things that he saw, excuse me, and then the things that are in the churches. And these are the things that will come after these things. These are future things. Most recently, we saw chapters 8 and 9, the seventh seal, and then those seven trumpets, of which then we're going to see in 16, out of that seventh trumpet, the seven bulls. But now in Revelation 10 through 15, it gets a little bit confusing because it's kind of like he's switching scenes. So it's like you're watching that movie that you see the end and then they jump back to try to develop the characters. And he's doing that now. He's developing so that you understand what's going to happen. As he goes back and in chapter 12, for example, we just saw it's the complete overview of Satan's career. The woman, the child, the dragon, which is identified as Satan of old, the devil, the deceiver. But the way he deceives in 13 is not through his direct means, but through the means of another that he will call out of the pit, which we've already seen in chapter 11, because that beast was called out of the pit in chapter 11 to persecute the two witnesses. And again, this is a kind of backpedaling to tell you and catch you up to speed on who these major players in the end are. He's simply a false counterfeit of the Christ. Daniel 7, as we'll see, calls him the little horn the man of lawlessness, the one who commits the abomination of desolation. 
Satan will ultimately present him as a counterfeit savior to the world. That's what he'll be held out as. He can solve all of the problems. And there will be something in our nature. Because the way God has made us, that will say, that sounds right. In fact, one who has died and rose again, all authority going to sounds very, very familiar. If it, it should to the believer. But this one is not the true Christ, but simply Satan's puppet of which he's going to pull the string. So I'll look at Revelation 13. We're going to see different ways that the Antichrist is a complete and utter counterfeit. And the first way here in these first two verses is you're going to see it is a counterfeit of authority. A counterfeit of he demonstrates himself as the imposter. Look at verse 1 here as we jump in. That It says, The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. And we know the dragon, the devil, Satan. And then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Here, Satan is called a, or Satan is calling this demon that comes out of the pit. He's seen as a beast. That is, it's one in whom you see, what do you think of as a beast that is powerful, but is power with absolutely no conscience. I love animals, but they don't have a soul and they don't have a conscience as much as we might think at times. I can think back to, if you remember the illusionist act, Siegfried and Roy, and when they had the white tiger and they did the acts over and over and over and then till one night the tiger turned and grabbed him by the neck. I was reading about that and one animal behaviorist said, yeah, that wasn't what a tiger does to be playful. Because they kind of tried to play it off like he wasn't meaning to. Like, no, that was to kill, to drag him off. I think, well, but they'd done so many shows together where they could seemingly tame that, that animal. But at the end of the day, as beautiful as that white tiger might have been, that is a beast with, yes, absolutely extremely powerful, but no conscience. And the beast that comes out of the sea, this demon, the Antichrist, powerful, but no conscience. And really in one way, really no ability to decide what he wants to do. Simply a servant of his master, the devil. And it says the dragon here stood on the sand of the seashore. If you go back to 11.7, we see that when they had finished their witness of the two witnesses, because this is forward in time. I know it's backwards, but it's forwards. This is where it gets a little bit challenging. But when the two had finished their witness, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And then if you fast forward over to chapter 17, which is going to be very helpful to our understanding this morning. 
you're going to see again that it was the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. So what is the, the seashore? Some look as we're going to see that so it depends on how you view the, the ten horns and the seven heads and the seven heads being seven kingdoms, seven mountains and 17 is what they're called. But I, I think best to probably see it just as another imagery of him coming up out of something that is coming out of the pit. Some will see it that the Israelite would know the seashore as the western edge and west of Israel is Rome and Rome is rising perhaps. In, in, but I think more likely that it's simply another imagery of him coming up out. And it's just a vivid picture of him coming out of the pit. And he comes out of the sea, which I think fits in. To the pit. And he's described as having these ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns ten diadems. This is the imagery we saw last week with Satan. Let's go back to chapter 12. And we saw these similar things of what he looked like in verse 3 that the other, another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon in heaven, seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. So the question is are these the same? The answer is they're not, and you can see because they become very distinctive. The dragon is on the sand of the seashore calling out this beast, but you can tell they are of the same like. He also having these ten horns and these seven heads and these diadems. I kind of breeze through what, what does this represent, and I had a few questions. And so I do think helpful if you go to, back to chapter 17. And you see this description. Seventeen verse three, and then we'll kind of jump down from there, but it's just simply to help us give a little grasp, it's clear here of what he's referencing. Because he carried me away, verse three, in the spirit into a wilderness. When I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. We're going to see that that woman is a harlot. Babylon, verse 5. And we're going to get there and see all of this. But what's helpful down is, verse 9 is an explanation of what about this imagery? Does John help us with it in Revelation? And he does. Here, verse 9, he says, is the mind which has wisdom. We want to have wisdom. Therefore recognize then that the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Which of course you go, well, that's a metaphor for a metaphor. I know. But mountains are often described as kingdoms throughout Scripture. And but more so than he makes it clear with, oh, there are the seven kings, verse 10. Five, he says, have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is not one of the seven and he goes to destruction. And then the ten horns, then the ten horns which you saw are the ten kings which have not yet received kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose and they give their power and their authority to the beast. So when it comes back to 13 and I mentioned why describe the seven heads as these ancient kingdoms of Egypt and Babylon and Persia, Assyria, and, and Greece. 
Because at this point up in history, when he says there are five that have fallen, it's a reference to there are five kingdoms that ruled the earth, as it were, the known world. And they have come and they have gone. And there is one that remains, which is the one that he's referencing that was alive and well when John is writing, which is Rome. And there's one to come. So the expectation of what is to come, and more of this if you dive into Daniel chapter 2, a revived Rome. Daniel chapter 7, in a similar way, is going to help us because it's going to describe not only these things thousands of years before, but also he's going to describe these pictures in verse 2. It says, And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. He says, The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a heart of man was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one in the likeness of a bear. And it was raised up on one side. And three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise and devour much meat. And after this, Daniel kept looking and behold, another one like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads, and the dominion was given to it. And this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, fearsome, terrifying, extraordinarily strong, that had a large iron teeth, and it devoured, an extraordinarily strong and an iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the other beasts that were before it. It had ten horns, which I was contemplating the horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn, one a little one came up from among them and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great boasts. Which is pretty much whenever you see the Antichrist speaking, he is speaking here in 13. He is speaking in when Jesus describes him in the sermon on the, or in the, on the all the discourse as one speaking blasphemies. And here in Daniel as well, that he rises above out of the 10. And so seeing the seven heads as those the, the five that have fallen, the current Rome, which then fell, and then the future revived Roman Empire. But there are also these ten horns of which you see of these nation states which we have today. And that ten will rise up. And that out of them will rise this demonic individual. And so yes, you go, it's a little bit like we're tracking along, right? But also, you see the language, the referencing, verse 2. And it makes sense. You go, John has a context, but you have to know your Bible. That it's a beast, like a leopard, and a bear, and a mouth, feet like a bear, mouth like a lion. And so you're able to see, okay, this, this, this description here is going back to Daniel chapter 7. He's going to have the authority given to him, the dragon, who of course is not his own authority either. But he's been given the key to do this short period of time before the Lord exacts his final judgment. Given the power in his throne and he has great authority. But it is a counterfeit authority. It is not the authority we read about as you look at the scripture when it talks about the wants and true and returning king. 
They will look and they will see someone who can save them out of the, the horrendous judgments we've seen so far. But it'll be a false authority that is only temporary, that ultimately will look a certain way like he has power, but it is still only power underneath a much greater power. And so his authority is counterfeit. And if you can't see the parallels, and of course you see the very word antichrist, you can't help but see them in verse 3, because it's not only a counterfeit authority, it is a counterfeit resurrection in verse 3, that I saw one of his heads, and it had been slain fatally. So remember the seven heads, the seven kingdoms, the final one yet to come, that kingdom, fatal wound. But yet his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled and followed after the beast. Now there's a question one. Is, is this the nation of Rome rising up? I think it's more likely it's the individual. Because of the personal pronouns. Not only here, <coughs> but elsewhere in Revelation. It seems to be, it's not just the rising up of what they thought was a dead empire. Rome rising up, but... It seems that the individual, the Antichrist, is fatally wounded. Or again, it seems as though it's, it's this kind of language that he saw that has, if it had been fatally wounded, and then it is healed. What happens? The whole world says he should be dead. But they marvel and they follow after the beast. I don't know, and there's some debate over whether he actually dies in his rays. I don't think that probably happens. I don't know if it doesn't seem Satan has that kind of power, but you can understand what it is to be fatally wounded and then someone to be brought back and to be, wow, that person should have died yet is alive. And it seems that it's this fake resurrection that is unifying for him around those 10 nations that represent those 10 horns. And it solidifies his power and his influence over the entire world. The world wants to see what they want to see. You see it over and over again. You turn on the TV, you watch the media, and we just want to hear certain things. And one day it'll not be all the war and tumult and conflict that the media promotes, but it'll be the other way and it'll be what you want to hear even when it talks about not only the end times here, this last period, we're going to see the 30 or the 42 months, the three and a half years, but even in the church age, there are those who want their ears tickled to hear what they want to hear. They're going to see what they want to see and they're not going to trust the word. They're not going to trust the true Christ and they're going to follow after the beast here in verse 3, because he seemingly has the power, has the authority, and even potentially, look, how could the world see? He was, should have died, and yet he is back. He is this counterfeit resurrection. And thirdly, though, he continues here in verse 4. It's not only that, but you're going to see a counterfeit worship. This is not going to be like a typical hero in the world. It's not going to be Simply someone who has respect in the world or someone who has 
power and authority as a king or a head of state. This is going to go far beyond that to where the blurring of religion, of worship, they won't just respect, they won't just follow, they will worship. But it'll be counterfeit. Verse 4, he says, they worshiped the dragon. And so it's not just worshiping the beast, but by worshiping the beast and following the beast, they worship his master, the devil, the dragon, because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? Sounds like the Psalms. Who is like God? But it's not. Who is like the beast who is able to wage war. Look at his authority. Look at his power that has been granted to him. But it is counterfeits. Can't help but think when I think of counterfeits of Moses and that Pharaoh asks him for miracles to establish his authority. And there's throwing the, the rod down and turning into a snake. And then he had his own counterfeit and he brought his magicians to do it as well. But yet it was Moses's staff that swallowed the others whole. And there's some similarity, but it's no. There is, in the end, no comparison. They're completely different. And so this worship is worship that comes because they see him as the one with authority, the one who is coming now to rescue and to save. And so they worship. And then verse 5, there's given him a mouth speaking great boasts and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. That's that same kind of 42, a little math, 36 plus 6, three and a half years. Described different ways, whether it's days or months. All to go back to this phrase that the time frame of the seven years and half of the seven years of Daniel speaks of. But he goes about and he says the things that no one would dare say today. We have a few politicians who say pretty wild things, who are pretty arrogant, who are pretty boastful. This one is going to take the cake and be different and speak things. Again, things that would be, he's asking for, for worship that, will, that would shock us, but yet the world will be perfectly primed and ready to receive at this time. And he will open his mouth He will blaspheme openly God. Blaspheme his name, his tabernacle. And he's describing which tabernacle, what tabernacle. Well, that is those who dwell in heaven. We've seen that picture of the tabernacle in heaven. And he will profane and blaspheme against all of them. He'll speak, that is to say, lies about who God is and what God's plan is. He is a blasphemer. And it's not new here because Daniel predicts the very same thing, his arrogance. And Jesus notes how he'll defile the temple. Yet it's noted over and over again, that is, he is simply the Antichrist. That is, he's compared to what he is, not not the true authority. And therefore it is not true worship. I think of proclaiming, of preaching, of teaching. And here, and you go... He's boasting. He's proclaiming. There's a way in which he's preaching, right? But it is preaching a false gospel, a false salvation, speaking great boasts, great blasphemy. So just as Christ is 
Colossians 1.16, for him and all things were created, both in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. That's the kind of thing the Antichrist will tell the world, that it was all made for him and all will bow down and follow him. Who, he said, except for those who reject him. We understand that the church is gone from here. The church is removed. In fact, you're going to see, I think, evidence of that even in verse 9. But God still has his people. People are still getting saved during even this horrible part of the end of this tribulation period. And the beast will do exactly what Christ is coming to do, which Revelation is about, which is to return in judgment. But he will provide, fourthly, a counterfeit judgment. That counterfeit judgment will be met out against God's people, the ones whose name is written in the book of life of the Lamb. Verse 7, it's given to him. And over and over again, you notice, given, given, given. He doesn't have authority on his own. Partially why it's a counterfeit authority. It's an allowance that he might even serve God's purposes to deal out judgment. Similar to when Canaanite, say the Canaanites or the Philistines would come in and they'd be used as judgment. It wasn't because they were good and righteous, but they were used as a tool of judgment against Israel. And here, the Antichrist is biblically being used as a tool as judgment against the unbelieving world. And so he's been given aloud to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to them. This is where the context of the whole book is so encouraging. It's so helpful because what is the phrase you see over and over again in the three, uh, in the beginning of those first three chapters of the churches in chapters two, chapter three, the seven churches, that they are overcomers. And so when they are here presented with, well, then if we're overcomers, why is he granted during this period to overcome us? To make war and to kill. And you note, he is not talking here because he's been very specific when he talks about the 12 tribes or the 144,000 or the, the lady in chapter 12. He's not talking about Israel here. He's talking about authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation, which is Revelation's way of saying Gentiles, the rest of the world, those in this case who are not Israel. Because remember chapter 12? He couldn't get to Israel. And so verse 17, if you pop up there of chapter 12, the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her seed who keep the commandments of God and have witness, the witness of Jesus. And that's exactly what he does here. And he does so through the means of the beast that rises up, the Antichrist. And he is given and granted this authority to make war. And so he does so against all the others. And he, all who dwell on the earth, it says, will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. That says a couple things. It says, one, that's how universal this is. It's everyone in a way that we don't see in the world today, that kind of unity against the church. There is not going to be a hundred different religions. There's going to be two. You either follow him or you keep the commandments of God and you have the witness of Jesus. That is it. And it's been said that even as you look at the world today, there really are only two different kinds of religion. 
Because you can basically take all the religions of the world and summarize them in a way in which they're all trying to get back to God, reconcile to him by doing something. So take your pagan religion and it's going to boil down to you do this to earn this. And it's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so distinctive because it isn't you do this to earn salvation. You do this to earn favor. It is God sent his son to do something for you. To die for you, to take your sin, to bear on it, that you might have life. That you might be saved by his sacrifice for you and by the authority of his true, not counterfeit, resurrection. And so what I'd say you could even look today is true, which is there's really only two when you boil it down. You got to do something or you recognize God has done something. It'll be very clear then when everyone is worshiping one or the other, there will be no mistake. And then lastly there, or the, the second part of that in verse eight is simply that there's comfort here. There's perseverance as you'll see in verse 10. Those who are written will not be, as he said earlier, when he references the book of life in Revelation, will not be blotted out. Why? Because it can't happen. They are there. They are his, and he will keep his. And even if they are killed and they are martyred, they join the martyred saints and they cry out at the altar asking God, how long, O Lord? And they will, and they are true overcomers, just recognizing that they may not receive all of that in this earthly life, but it will come in the future. And so it's written there. You're going to see books throughout Revelation, this idea of the book of life, that God has his book that he has his people written into. And the comfort is they are his and we are his. And then in verse 9, he says, if anyone hears, anyone has an ear, let him hear. If you're working through and you've been reading Revelation much, you might recognize that phrase and you go, where have I heard that before? Well, multiple times with the churches when he would say and, and proclaim a judgment on the church in those chapter two and chapter three, he would then say, if anyone has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, which is what you would expect here. But it doesn't say that. And I would say, well, the reason it doesn't say that is I think the church has been raptured in to heaven because they're not meant for the wrath of God that is being poured out at this moment. This is distinctive. It's why you don't see, yes, it is the saints. Yes, it is the witnesses of Jesus, but it's not the same as this church age that's been going on between that sixth and that seventh head. Rome has fallen. The sixth head has fallen and we await the seventh. What's going on in the middle? It is us. It is this age of the church, which has a different mission. We have a mission to go out, the great commission to make disciples, to teach, to be his witnesses in the world. And although his saints here, these tribulation saints, I'm sure will bear witness, it is a different age altogether. And the different advice, therefore, is given in verse 10. And we're going to see this advice show up elsewhere in Scripture and see what this proverb means. Because he says in verse 10, if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. This sounds like a proverb, right? 
anyone is destined for captivity, and that destined is probably in uh, italics, it's not there in the original. You could say if anyone is for captivity, to captivity goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. And there's always a tendency to go, what does that mean? And kind of, I think you can get there a little bit and go, well, it seems like it's, it's kind of fatalistic. It's kind of a, saying, this is going to happen no matter what you want to do. If you're meant for captivity, you're going to go. And although I think there is some truth simply in the proverb of trust the Lord, trust in him, even if it means you are going to suffer, even if anyone is going to pick up and fight, then they're going to fight back and you will be killed. But more so, it comes out of Jeremiah 15, which is a context of the Babylonian captivity. And this phrase, those destines for death to death, it's this idea that even as Israel will go into captivity, in a similar way, these tribulation saints should be somewhat resigned to go, this is a time of God's judgment. We're living in it. We recognize it. And we understand that God's purposes will be met out. We're okay with it. We're not looking to take matters into our own hands. We've seen the signs. Jeremiah 15, Yahweh says to Jeremiah, even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my soul would not be with his, this people, send them away from my presence and let them go. And it'll be that when they say to you, where should we go? Then you are to tell them, thus says Yahweh, those destined for death to death, those destined for the sword to the sword, those destined for famine to famine, those destined for captivity to captivity. Which is to say, not one to one. I don't think they're under judgment quite the same way Israel's under judgment here. But he's pulling that idea, that phrase, and bringing it forward just simply to say there is an inevitability of God's judgment is being met out, which we've seen over and over again with the seals and the trumpets and, and soon the bowls. And it is to say that generation, as Jesus says in the sermon or the, uh, all the discourse, that generation, hey, expectations. That's where it is likely headed for you. And there, there's a, a comfort in this though, being reminded that the Lord is in control and that he has a place for you and that there are things worse than death. And if that's the worst that they can threaten you with, then it's for the believer better to be with the Lord. Well, there are counterfeits, many, many counterfeits. The, the way the Antichrist counterfeits the authority of Christ, the resurrection, the worship, the judgment. You go, why look so much like the real thing? Well, that's what the ultimate deceiver does. Even an unbelieving world has that, that desire to reach out and see, I want someone like this, someone to solve all of the problems. And listen, if he really has come in the flesh, that is God has come in the flesh, and he has died for you, and he has risen again, I will line up behind him. But the danger is going to be that a whole world is going to line up behind the counterfeit, not the real thing. And the reality for the world we live in is that there is the spirit, as John says in First John, of the Antichrist. There's still counterfeits out there. You and I face every single day 
empty promises. Think of Proverbs, the empty promises of money and of sex and of power, entertainment, leisure. But there's really only one hope now. And there's only one hope in the future, which is Christ. And the encouragement that in light of this reality and this destiny for the tribulation saints, to captivity you go. He's saying, here is though the perseverance and the faith of the saints, that they are willing to go. Even if it means death, they're willing to follow their Savior. And I'd even go out on a limb, and I don't know the world's changing, but I don't know if you and I are going to face the same choices that they're going to face here. But we still face the same counterfeits, and they're going to persevere and say no to blaspheming God and no to following the Antichrist. But our calling is to say no to different counterfeits, to say no to those empty promises in the world. Yes, we don't bow down, as we read early, to Aphrodite, and we don't burn incense to Artemis. But you see those same things that the world presents. And we have to look at what we value, what Christ has done, what he has saved us, not only from, but to, as we look to conform our lives to the image of Christ. The only way you're going to do that is to recognize things that are counterfeits. How do you do that? Continue to be in the word, renewing your mind, because it shows you. It tells you what is out there, the temptations. And look to the true, the genuine, the one, and the only true Savior, which is Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time given to us this morning to look and be reminded of the beauty of Christ. That he is truly all of these things that are falsely promised. We understand the terminology and the word, the idea of things that are fakes, imposters, counterfeits. As we look to live our lives now in this age, help us evaluate our own hearts and our own lives. What are the things that we serve? How do we make decisions? How do we spend our resources and our time I pray that they would reflect the truth that we confess together as a church, that the one who is worthy is Christ, and that we would value the things that are eternal and the things that are spiritual, even while we continue to minister to the world, presenting a true hope, a genuine, loving Savior that desires all to come to know him. We just pray this in his name. Amen.